But let me pray before I start to read and ask God to help us. Father, we thank you that you are not just the king that we sang about just now, but the best sort of king, because you are the God who loves his people. And so we pray that because you love us, that you would please speak to us. And because even when you're speaking to us, we are slow to listen, please would you help us by your Holy Spirit to take in everything you say. And we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Now, Acts chapter 13. I'm just going to read verses 1 to 12. Now, there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manain, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshipping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. So being sent by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Cilicia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. When they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews, and they had John to assist them. When they had gone through the whole island as far as Paphos, they came upon a certain magician, a Jewish false prophet called Bar-Jesus. He was with the proconsul, Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence, who summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. But Elimas, the magician, for that is the meaning of his name, opposed him, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. But Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, <coughs> looked intently at him and said, you son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, full of all deceit and villainy, will you stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? And now behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you will be blind and unable to see the sun for a time. Immediately mist and darkness fell upon him, and he went about seeking people to lead him by the hand. Then the proconsul believed when he saw what had occurred, for he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. The prayer of God, and uh, we prayed, so let me uh, ask you a question as we start. Uh, and uh, that is that if I was to ask you, what would you say was uh, the point of your life? It's a good question to ask uh, the young, uh, like uh, uh, Ruth and Abigail, uh, when you're young and you're just setting out. It's worth asking, what would you like to do with the life that you have been given? Or, yes, absolutely. Uh, I will not leave Eddie out again. But look, it's a good question to ask when you're old as well. I've been with my family 
uh, over Christmas. And these days in the family, if you get talking to your family, in our case, we're talking to the retireds. And my cousin, who's retired, showed her, told uh, my wife, uh, I've got everything and I feel empty. Uh, life is not, uh, it, it got a purpose. Another uh, answer to the retirement question by asking, by answering what they would like to do in 2012, was to travel. Two months in New Zealand, one month in Latin America, a good amount of time in Spain. I didn't think it at the time, but oh, I thought it at the time, I didn't say it at the time. You've got to have robbed a bank if you want that much time out of the country. Um, in order to escape. But tonight we're going to see, do what we always do, which is to take the Bible and work out the Bible answer to this everyday question that's worth us asking today. What is the purpose of your life? What should I give myself to? Is it to my job? Is it to my family? Is it to my next holiday? What? Well, we're going to look at Acts chapter 13 and get the answers from there. And the first thing we're going to do is to ask, what is God's priority? And here's the advantage of going to the Bible with a question like that. It tells us how God would tell us what he is going to give himself to do. And then we'll get the answer to what is the best thing we can give ourselves to do. And if you look at Acts, which is what we've been doing in our church on Sundays, and ask, what is God giving himself to do? What is the one thing that uh, defines God's purpose, if I can put it like this, to his life? And you look in Acts for the answer, and the answer will come, evangelism. Evangelism, evangelism is everything to God. It's all he thinks about, if I can put it like that. Getting his son understood and loved by others. And before Christmas, we looked at the first 12 chapters of Acts. And if you turn to the very, very start of the book, uh, it's Acts chapter 1 and verse 1, and it tells you what God, or you can say Jesus, is doing today. Luke has told us that he's written a book about what Jesus began to do and teach. But now, in Acts chapter 1 verse 1, he is writing another book because Jesus continues to do things in his world today. And Jesus didn't stop doing things at the end of the first book. So, Jesus is here and he is active and he is doing things. And what is he doing? What is, if you like, Jesus giving himself to doing? He is giving himself to bring the gospel to the whole world. And you can see in Acts chapter 1 verse 8 that uh, he is going to uh, take the gospel. He's going to give his disciples power to be witnesses to these three different groups of people, to Judea, uh, to Jerusalem and Judea, to Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Yes, that's their job, but when you get to see how the job is done, you see that he is in the thick of it. So in Acts chapter 2, when the Holy Spirit comes to the Jews in Jerusalem, 
Well, it is Jesus who is doing his work helping people to become Christians there. And when you look at uh, the Holy Spirit, he goes to the Samaritans in Acts chapter 8. So in other words, it's Jesus again, his spirit, who is doing the work of helping Christians. Samaritans become Christians. And then you go to Acts chapter 10, and there's Cornelius, who is what's called a Gentile, an outsider, a non-Jew. And the Holy Spirit is there helping him and his family. So Jesus is in the thick of the action all the way through. This is what he is doing. It's the big thing that he is there to do. He's not just simply telling us how he winds up the clock and then sends these little apostles clicking away to do their little bits and pieces around the world. No, this is what he is doing. And he gives himself at every stage. He leads every stage. But so far, if you look at the first 12 chapters, you see that it's happening in a kind of evangelism, in a kind of reaction way. So, what happens is the Holy Spirit comes in Acts chapter 2, and people are speaking strange languages, and someone says, what on earth is going on here? And then Peter has to give an explanation. He reacts to the question. You go to Acts chapter 3, the very next chapter, he's going off, to do nothing but to get into the temple and to worship God is the hour of prayer at, at three o'clock in the afternoon. And he passes the lame man by the temple and he makes the lame man better. And everybody is saying to Peter, how marvelous you are to have done this. And again, Peter has to react and say, hold on, it wasn't me, it was Jesus. And he explains again. Except Jesus is meant to be dead at the time, you might remember. So the Jewish authority <coughs> turned around to Peter and said, shh, don't talk about Jesus like that anymore. But Peter keeps talking about Jesus like that. And then what happens? They start getting angry and they start persecuting the Christians. And the Christians react. They run away to different places in Acts chapter 8, verse 4. And there, people obviously ask them, what are you doing here? And so they have to tell them, and they start speaking about Jesus in those different places as they react to the trouble that they got into in Jerusalem and ran away from it. And so therefore, it mainly happens, not because people are wanting to go to a place and talk about Jesus, it's because they are driven there, and they talk about Jesus, they bump into other people, and then they speak as the opportunity comes. That's chapters 1 to 12 at a glance. <coughs> but now, something new is going to happen in chapter 13 onwards. From chapter 13 onwards, they are going to places, not because they have to, because someone's thrown them out and they have to go somewhere. They go to places because they deliberately plan to get there to tell people about Jesus and to help them to become Christians. So the difference from now on is not that, okay, now that they've left the Jewish scene behind, they're going to go out and speak to non-Jewish people. No, they've already been speaking to non-Jewish people. So the difference is not who they speak to, but how they speak to. No longer reacting, but going deliberately to meet them. And it all starts again 
with God. If you look at chapter 13 and verse 2, you see that they're all there. And they're worshipping God. Now, let me tell you <coughs> that worship in the Bible is not something that Christians do because he likes that sort of thing. It's a bit like us rubbing his back the right way. People can talk about worship as something that Christians do for God. Now, worship in the Bible is itself a reaction to God when these apostles and all those people you read about in verse 1 are together talking about the amazing, blazing love of God for his people, where worship is that over feeling of being overwhelmed at being loved by God. <coughs> and you just simply turn around and say, God, this is extraordinary. Ah, let me take you back to last Tuesday. This is a very bad example, but Nina made a fantastic curry. And we all sat down at the curry, and as soon as the taste hit the taste buds, we went, ah, you know, this is excellent. Now, that's just a small example, probably a very bad example, but if I could put it like this, when the goodness of God, when his love for you hits the taste buds, you go, wow, that's what worship is. I didn't realize there was a God who would love me that much. And so praying and fasting that you see after that is really, well, what happens when you fast? What you're really saying is, I want this God more than I want my food. He is so great. <coughs> and how can we respond to you, God, as glorious as you are? Because you have just overwhelmed us with your love. And the answer comes in verse 2. Here's the way to respond through evangelism. While they were worshipping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. This is God's priority. This is the work that I call people to do. So evangelism is everything in uh, God's heart and he calls people to do that work as well. The church is overwhelmed by God's love. They worship him and this is how they will respond to his great love. Okay? This is God's priority. It's evangelism. It's also man's priority as well because God tells people what to do and man has to do, do it. He doesn't tell people how. You, you've got to look at chapter 13 verse 1 and recognize that people are important. It's hard to miss that point, isn't it? There are a number of people that are named, so obviously people are going to be doing this and taking the gospel out. And they're going to take it out from a very significant place. Antioch is more than a travel lodge between Jerusalem, where Acts starts, and Rome, where Acts finishes. And there happens to be this place along the way called Antioch. No, that's not what Antioch is. Antioch is the Gentile base camp that will take the gospel to imperial Rome. This is the place from which they will 
ascend. You know how it is? The Himalayas have got a base camp and then you climb to the top. From the base camp you go to different places. Well, Antioch will be the base camp that will take the gospel ultimately to Imperial Rome. It's a very significant Roman city and you can see it has very significant people in it. It's a fantastic international team that is full of talent. First person you read about is a man called Simeon. He's called Simeon, also called Niger. Now Niger is a Latin word for black, presumably because there were two Simeons in church and this was one way of distinguishing one from the other. So here was uh, an African in this high-powered team and actually he wasn't the only one because you look and you see that uh, the next name on the list is Lucius of Cyrene. Now Cyrene is from North Africa too. So in the major strategic team that's going to take the gospel to the world you've got Africans at the heart of it. And then we should be falling off our chairs when we read about this man called Manian and we're told that he was a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch. Actually, the description, the word that is describing this says a whole lot more than a lifelong friend. Actually, the Iranian Bible has it better. They translate it into foster brother, which is actually what he was. That's astonishing because if you were here when we were doing Acts chapter 12, you see there were three Herods mentioned in the early part of the, of the Gospels and all three were anti-Jesus. And now you turn to Acts chapter 13 and you meet this group of high-powered church leaders and they've got a Herod in there. And so they've got this amazing team that is going to... Uh, take the gospel into the different parts of the world. And God says, set apart for me Saul and Barnabas. We don't know exactly how God said that. It could have been through one of the prophets. And in verse 3, it is the church that sends them off. But notice that God uh, sets them out, but doesn't tell them where to go. They have to choose. And what happens is both of these two men, they decide to go to the place that they know best, which is their hometown. So they start off with uh, Cyprus, because Luke is heading for home. Cyprus is where Luke comes from. Just look back at Acts chapter 4, verse 36. And uh, it's only a couple of pages back. And in Acts chapter 4, verse 36, it says... Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, he was a Levite, a native of Cyprus. So first thing they go, because at this stage Barnabas' name comes first, he is the leader of the expedition, and they go straight to where he feels most at home. And then the next place they go to after that is all the areas around where Paul grew up in Tarsus. And presumably they missed Tarsus because Paul has already spent 11 years there, so they go to the regions around Tarsus. They choose where they're going. It's man's choice how the gospel goes out. And it is their strategy as to how it goes out. 
because what they do is they go to all the different regional centers that the Romans are based, the important towns. And when they get to the important town, they've got this strategy where they go first to the synagogue and they talk to the Jews and the God-fearers who are there. And then they talk to other people in the town who may not be Jews. And then usually they are kicked out of the town and they go somewhere else. And then eventually they come back. They go to another regional centre and again they go to the synagogue and again they speak to Jews and then they speak to the non-Jews and then they leave. And then usually what happens is they ultimately come back and encourage those Christians in those towns all over again. That's the strategy. You see it happening from now to the end of the book. And that's exactly what happens. So they go to the regional centres. Uh, you can see Jerusalem is obviously the place where uh, they started. Then they go to Antioch. Then they go to Athens and Corinth. Then they go to Ephesus. So ultimately they end up in Rome. And in each of those regional centres they get turned into a base camp for the Gospel. So that people around the areas in those centres get to find out. It's all carefully planned, deliberate strategy. Luke, when he talks about the Gospel going up in Jerusalem, his book is only going to take us west and north. Because ultimately Luke's book is concerned about getting us to Rome. But that is not to say the Gospel only went west and north. We're just following the tracks of Paul as he goes west and north, but the Gospel went to other places too. For example, the church in uh, Martoma in India will tell you that Thomas, uh, the Apostle, went there, and possibly to Sri Lanka as well. So the Gospel was spreading in other, in other ways, in other places, but Luke is just taking us down the tracks to Rome. And from Rome, there is the regional centre. You know that Paul was wanting to use Rome to then get to Spain, to go further west. In other words, to make this regional centre a place where other people find out about Jesus. Ultimately, that is how Britain, or Britannia as we would have been there, got to hear the Gospel from that regional centre as the Gospel went out. And then Britannia becomes a regional centre, doesn't it? Because London becomes a regional centre that starts sending the Gospel out to other parts of the world. And so the Kenyans get to hear the Gospel. Um, and um, the Nigerians get to hear the Gospel. And um, <clears throat> then something went badly wrong and even the Australians got to hear the Gospel. Um, everyone gets to hear from there, from the base camp. And, and London's no longer, uh, Britain's no longer got an empire, but London, in a way, you can think, is actually a town that has become an empire. Because whereas previously, to get to different places, you had to go to the different parts of the empire and meet people in their different countries that existed in the empire. Now, all those countries have come, as it were, that the empire shrunk into London. And London became a bigger centre than Rome um, in the 19th century. And whereas in those days, the top three population, the, the, the most populous area of the Roman Empire, uh, where now you could fit those numbers into just three London boroughs. 
because we've got the world here. And the way God uses um, the gospel spread is to take, um, if you like, a hub for the gospel and to uh, uh, go out from there. It becomes a gospel base camp for others to hear. Now that's uh, a quick summary of the whole book of Acts, I suppose, in a way. And you see how evangelism happens uh, always in twos. You've got God's work, you've got man's work. You've got reaction and you've got deliberate planning going together. And if it's all too much for you to take in one big book, let me ask you to just take in one little country. Because all those lessons can be learned with what happens in Cyprus, the first place that they go to. Notice in verse 4, it is God sending them out. They are sent out by the Holy Spirit. But they're not told where to go. They sail. They went down to Cilicia and from there they sailed to Cyprus. God's work man's work. In verse 5, notice, it is them heading for the synagogues. Notice in verse 6, they are taking in the whole island. It's very deliberate, isn't it? As you see, when they had gone through the whole island. So in other words, now it's not reactionary anymore. They haven't gone to Cyprus for a holiday and then bumped into a few Jews down to the synagogue just by chance. Now they are planning this every step of the way. But as well as the planning, you get the reaction because the proconsul in verse 7 summons them. And it's wonderful to see he's a me meant to be a man of intelligence if you look at verse 7. And what does any man of intelligence wants, want to do? Uh, but once you, you hear about Jesus, he summons Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. That's what any person of intelligence will want to do. And of course it's baffling how if this man is a man of intelligence, he has this idiot Bar Jesus with him, or Elymas if you want to call him another name. But while you're scratching your head and you're puzzled by that, let me tell you, it shows you that all this is bang on true because in those days, senior, able Roman uh, officials seem to have these superstitions and have these people in their court. And Roman history records that this man was the governor of... Uh, Syria at the time, although their records, he's got, the Paulus has got two L's. But nonetheless, it confirms that everything that Luke is telling us is absolutely true. And more than absolutely true, I think it's absolutely great because here's Paul ultimately on his way to Rome and the first person, the first rank outsider who's had no contact with believers, the first rank outsider is a high-ranking Roman official who becomes a believer by the end. So it is a wonderful thing that God is working through and man is working through and ultimately evangelism 
is on the march. Now, what can this teach us today? I want to suggest that uh, you might be one of three people. You might be someone who is new to Christian things and you're wondering whether really uh, there is a God or not. My friends, let me ask you to, uh, to come to the conclusion from this passage that if God is sending people out to tell you about Jesus, then it cannot be a small thing that God wants you to know and follow him. Please would you understand that there is a God behind every single person who has spoken to you about Jesus. He sent them. Therefore, be like the proconsul in verse 7, a man of intelligence and therefore who wants to find out more. Don't, in other words, be a person of no intelligence uh, don't be a person of blind belief, believing Jesus without finding out about him first. And don't be a person of blind unbelief, disbelieving in Jesus without finding out first. Look at verse 12 and see how good it is to find out first. What happens if you find out about this Jesus? Well, the end of verse 12 tells you, you will be astonished at the teaching of the Lord. So if you are someone new to these things, be like uh, the proconsul, be a person of intelligence, and you will be astonished at the teaching of the Lord as uh, you want to ask someone to tell you what God's word is for your life. Secondly, what happens if you've been around religious people all your life? Can I point out to you that in Cyprus there are two teachers, Paul and the false prophet. Many will concentrate here on the false prophet. And it's important to point out that he's the one who got to the proconsul first. And rather than teaching Jesus as he should, what verse 10 tells us that he was making crooked the straight paths of the Lord. Now on Tuesday evening, if you come back here for our Bible study, we'll scratch our heads and try and work out now what exactly happens when someone makes crooked the straight paths of the Lord. What's it actually like in, in the scene today for someone to do that? We'll get into the details. But I want to suggest that it's clearly someone who's making crooked the straight paths of the Lord. So they're clearly talking about the Lord and there are teachers today who claim to teach the Lord, but actually are not careful about teaching him from the Bible, and therefore you will end up getting Jesus crooked, not straight. And we need to be careful <coughs> of that, because it wouldn't be a surprise if teachers like this have got to you first in the churches that you've been to in the past. And sometimes the goodness of God, he has his hand of judgment on them so that actually those who have eyes to see will know that they are not the teachers to follow. They are blind, just like Elymas was struck blind. You can see that they're blind by the fact that you look at their personal life, perhaps their married life, perhaps their family life, and you will see that they are morally blind. 
in the way that they live. They are false prophets. Their life shows signs of blindness. But just notice that there's a good chance that teachers like this will get to you first before the true teacher comes along. And if you've been to church in the past, it may be that we need to put aside and stop being influenced by what we've heard before. Then what happens if you are a real Christian? And we want to get back to our first question. What will you give your life to? My friends, here it is, pure and simple, nice and easy. Live for the advance of the gospel. Live to make Jesus attractive to people who do not know him. Live to make your life a base cap for other people around you to know that God has a deep and real love for them. Now, in some ways, this is how God advances the gospel, isn't it? He does it in our church. In 2005, there were a group of ministers, not quite like the uh, celebrated gang in Acts chapter 13, verse 1, but there were a group of ministers in Dagnum, and we prayed that the gospel would be brought to this part of Dagnum because we knew of no churches that were really wanting people in this estate to follow Jesus or were doing very much about it. And so in 2005, we prayed, we cried out to God, please do something on this estate. And then in 2014, nine years later, he planted this church. This is his doing. My friends, be mightily encouraged that nothing gets off the ground without God himself being proactive and making it happen. That's what you see in Acts. That's what you see today. This is what Jesus is doing. And he makes this church a base camp to the estate that is around it. But what he does with the church, he does with individuals as well. And your life is a base camp for the people who are around you in the places where you live and work, maybe your block of flats, maybe the street where you live, you are the base camp for them, the people that you work with. You are the base camp to bring them to understand how much God loves them. This is your work. And we would want to do it by reacting to opportunities that we have, like our neighbour saying, you're off on Sunday mornings very early. Um, well, actually, it's midday, but early for some. And where, where do you go? And you then react and you tell them the reason why. But other places, you might be more deliberate and you might say, well, uh, that person there has just moved in. I'm going to go and take them a little parcel of food so that uh, they will know something of God's love and you will want to communicate it. My friends, whatever you might do in your life, you might be working in the office, as George said, or going to a school, as George said, or maybe um, involved in some other way. Would you see your prime job? Why do you want to do those jobs well? Would you see your prime identity in those places as to be 
a hub for the gospel, uh, to be a launching point, to be base camp for people who are in that place around you but who don't know God's love. Because, my friends, if you aren't like that, if you just simply say, well, Christian, Christianity is for some people who will take that responsibility, but personally, me, I've got my hands full with other things. I worry about other stuff in life. I've got too much on my mind to think like that. I'd want to remind you about a little parable that Jesus said about four different types of soil. And you will know that soil four is the seed that fell into that soil that then went on to multiply and produce other plants. In other words, that seed was a gospel hub, a base camp for others coming into the kingdom of Jesus. And if we are not seed four, then very often many Christians are seed three. In other words, completely snowed under by the worries of this life and the cares of this world. And frankly, they can't be bothered loving other people. Because honestly, they don't really think that God loves them very much. Because they've got all these worries and cares and think, oh my word, how am I going to survive? And the soil three person is not a Christian. The only Christian is the one in soil four who is bearing fruit, a base camp for others to come to know the love of Jesus. And every Christian is in that soil. And we need, therefore, to be those who live for others to know God's love. This is what God wants more than anything else. This is his driving passion. This is the only reason why Jesus didn't come back yesterday. It's his waiting back one day for more people to come in. My friend, this is the reason why God steps into tomorrow. And it's the reason why we step into tomorrow as well. Evangelism is everything to God. Make it everything for you. Well, there might be questions that come from that. Let's answer them in a moment. But first, let's have a moment of quiet. You might want to talk to God about what you've heard tonight and maybe where this has asked a couple of uh, deeper questions. Pray that God will help you to react well to them. Let's first moment of quiet and prayer and then after that I'll uh, pray and uh, we'll answer questions. Our minute service, so let me pray. Our Lord God, we do want to thank you that taking news about Jesus to others is not just another Christian duty, <coughs> but it comes out of a deep awareness of your great love for us and your great love for others. And Father, where so sorry that we uh, fail in this because we don't often see just how much you love us and we lose sight of just how much you love others. 
But because, Father, you are such a great God of love, we pray that you would please so fill our hearts, overwhelm us with the reality of your uh, deep uh, commitment and love uh, and affection for us through the Lord Jesus. And please would you help us to see other people as you see them. Even though we might not love them, please help us to see that you are the God who loves them and to make you known to them. And so we pray, Lord, that you would please make us uh, compassionate, motivated, and effective in the random chances that we get to react uh, as disciples of Jesus in unexpected situations may be. But please would you help us to be deliberate about in thinking how we might do this more with the people around us. That we might be uh, hubs of the gospel. That we might be base camps for others to find out something about your love for them. And we pray that for the glory of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Amen.